Believe it or not, there are still some federal courthouses in this country that have never had a non-white judge. On today's episode, we talk about why that is and look at the barriers to diverse judgeships at one court in the Deep South. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So there are 94 federal district courts across the United States. These are the federal system's trial courts, the first place legal disputes in the system get heard. Of these 94 courts, more than a quarter, 25 to be exact, have never had a non-white judge. Never. Not one. That's the big headline from the new project our guests today, Tiana Headley and Andrew Satter, just dropped at BloombergLaw.com. Now, in some of these courts, that stat is not super surprising. For example, places like Vermont or Wyoming have really tiny minority populations, so the lack of non-white judges there sort of makes sense. But then there are places like the Southern District of Georgia, where a third of the population is black, but none of the court's three judgeships have ever been held by a black person ever. Tiana and Andrew went down to this district to shoot a video about this and to figure out what kinds of structural issues are preventing diversity from reaching these parts of the federal judiciary. And you'll hear a clip from that video later on. But first, I asked Tiana to tell me about any patterns she noticed when looking at the courts that have never had a non-white judge. These uh, courts are pretty spread out across the country. We're talking about from the South to the Midwest to, to the Northeast. So there's like this idea that, you know, when we think about issues of racial inequality or r- racial inequity and uh, segregation, et cetera, uh, that they're sort of might be concentrated in certain parts of the country. But what we actually see with these districts are that they're pretty equally spread out across the country. Um, And we're talking about uh, ranging from the Western District of Louisiana, uh, which is which has a pretty sizable non-white population to the District of Rhode Island. Yeah. So let's zero in on the Southern District of Georgia here. Uh, Andrew, you and Tiana went down to this district. I think you went to Augusta, Georgia, uh, home of the Masters Golf Tournament, probably what most people know it from. Um, Andrew, tell me about this part of the country. What's it like and what was it like being down there? Yeah, we went down in May, thankfully before the the heat wave really took off. But you know, the, this district is aptly named. It's um, it's the south, actually eastern part of Georgia, and it kind of hugs along the coast from Savannah all the way down to the Florida border, um, and then it goes inland. And so, so you have this you know coastal um, part of it, but the rest of it is is very rural and agricultural. We, we actually started in Savannah, and then you get out of town about, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you know, past a few Cracker Barrels, and it's, like, really empty. And then, um, as, you know, as we noted in the story, there's a sizable black population. The cities in particular are actually majority black. It has a, a very complicated history with race. The ports on the Savannah River you know, were used to, you know, trade enslaved Africans. And, you know, there's a Confederate soldier monument in downtown Augusta. The Masters Golf Tournament, uh, as you mentioned earlier, has its own complicated legacy with race. So, you know, it's it's really, uh, you, the history is kind of living there. And even in, in just being down there, you, you really get the feel for a place that hasn't quite fully reckoned with um, its its past. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really liked about the story, though, that you guys did is that 
you didn't just you know, dig through the data and point out that there are still this many courts that have never seen a black judge. You looked into why. And Tiana, I want to talk to you about that. Can you get into one of the reasons why that you found that that there are so many courts, and specifically this court uh, that has never had a a black judge? And the, the reason that you, the first reason that you point out is the pipeline issue. Can you explain that? Right. So many of the black attorneys in uh, the Southern District of Georgia, you can find quite a bit of representation at sort of the local government level, whether you're looking at uh, judges at the municipal court level, juvenile court judges, for example, district attorneys, uh, lawyers representing to the school district. But when it comes to the sort of federal level, there is quite the, the disparity. So, for example, there have been very few black attorneys that have worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, so the Federal Prosecutor's Office for the Southern District of Georgia, looking outside of the sort of government level. Black attorneys are often not hired to uh, work at these locally prestigious law firms. Yeah, and you guys interviewed uh, two black attorneys in that area, Lester B. Johnson III and Ed Tarver. And let's play a clip from your video where you speak to them. You'll hear Lester first. I did not get any offers from any of the predominantly, well, actually, at that time, they were all white law firms. Didn't get any offers from them, but a small black law firm here in Savannah made me an offer. Here in Augusta, there are firms that have no racial diversity in their firms. Why is that? When I was a senior in high school, I saw uh, a white attorney, and I said, hey, I think I'd like to do that. But that didn't mean that I saw myself doing that and didn't know any African-American attorneys. So you two interviewed Lester and Ed in their offices in Georgia. Tiana, tell me a little bit about who they are. What's their background? Right. So Lester B. Johnson III and Ed Tarver are pretty well-known and respectable Um, not just black attorneys in their local communities, but just attorneys generally, both in the Savannah and uh, Augusta uh, communities. Ed Tarver's career has really been one of several trailblazing firsts. He was the first uh, black attorney to ever clerk for a federal judge in the Southern District of Georgia and the first black attorney to be hired um, by the firm that's now known as Hull Barrett. He created sort of all of these uh, connections that kind of led him to be pushed to apply to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. And by one might say luck, (laughs) Um, but also, you know, it being uh, President Barack Obama at the time, he eventually was appointed to be the first black U.S. attorney and only black U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Georgia. Lester B. Johnson III, he is a product of a parochial schools, um, really grew up in the age of segregation, had many experiences where his uh, qualifications as as an aspiring lawyer were doubted by folks like a career counselor at his college um, in Massachusetts. But he did get his law degree at uh, the University of Miami Law School and uh, went on to become a pretty well-known go-to government um, lawyer, also a a career of firsts. Uh, He was the first and only, again, black uh, president of the Savannah Bar Association. Hmm. 
Andrew, uh, you were in both of these guys' uh, offices, and you uh, put them on uh, on camera. Uh, tell me about what they were like. Give me a sense of uh, you know who they are. So meeting with both these gentlemen, you really get a sense of both their their modesty. As Tiana just just um, chronicled, they have these amazing accomplishments and achievements, and are just both very impressive men. But you know, you just you just kind of expand your your field of view, and you you really get a sense of how um, how accomplished they are. You know, uh, behind, sitting behind Lester Johnson is a photo of him with uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Right, because Justice Thomas grew up in Savannah. Most people, a lot of people, don't uh, don't know that. Yeah, so they're longtime friends. Um, Clarence Thomas grew up in Savannah. Uh, which a lot of people might not know. Um, and then, you know, a, a, again, as Tiana mentioned, you look at uh, Ed Tarver's wall and there's photos of him with Barack Obama. There's photos of him with Joe Biden. There's photo of him with his class of uh, U.S. attorneys. So, you know, just just being in there in their offices, um, you know, it, it, they, they, they feel they feel like people who should be judges. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I want to get back to something, Tiana, that you mentioned, though, that the the way you become a local municipal judge or even a state judge is very different than how you uh, attain a federal judgeship. Um, and this gets back to connections, you know, who you have access to and whether or not you have access to the gatekeepers who can control whether or not you become a federal judge. Who are these gatekeepers? Can you talk a little bit about that? About And I just, you know, the process of how one attains a federal judgeship? Right. So I'll start off by just explaining how the appointment process works. So when it comes to these specifically district court vacancies, the president has to work with the U.S. senators to identify uh, potential nominees for trial court openings in that lawmaker's home state. So at least at the local level, the main, quote, gatekeepers of the process are the senators themselves. But really, the wider network of gatekeepers, power brokers, et cetera, really stretches out to encompass this pretty exclusive uh, network of legal and political elites. Uh, and historically, the people who have had the most access to those elites are corporate lawyers, federal prosecutors, and people who are already in sort of high-ranking judicial posts. And to reflect back on what that has meant for uh, the Southern District of Georgia, um, not many African-Americans have occupied those jobs um, to therefore get access to those gatekeepers and those really crucial uh, networking opportunities that have elevated so many of the white judges on the Southern District bench. Well, let's talk about the situation as it is now, because we have a Democratic president we have two senators from Georgia who are both Democrats, one of whom is an African-American. And yet, based on your story, I don't get a sense that we're going to see a black judge in the uh, Southern District of Georgia anytime soon. And that gets to the other element uh, in your story, which is timing. Sometimes it's not even really up to the you know gatekeepers. It's just up to whether there is a vacancy. And it doesn't sound like there's going to be a vacancy on that court anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, right. The president often gets this sort of credit of Barack Obama or Trump appointed X or Y judge. But that process, as I just explained, is so much more complicated than that. Um, So, for example, uh, how we get these vacancies, right, is when a judge decides to leave the bench entirely 
or decides to uh, assume what's known as senior status, a form of semi-retirement. And that allows for reduced workload. So they're technically still working, but it allows for a vacancy for a president to fill. And these judges tend to leave the bench or enter semi-retirement only when a like-minded president um, is in the White House to fill that seat. So sort of to keep the kind of political legacy going there. But not all judges uh, follow that rule. Right. And And as you pointed out, the three judges who are currently sitting in this district are all appointed by Republicans at the current moment. Right. Two are Bush appointees and one is a a Trump appointee. Let's get to that Trump appointed judge, not the judge him or herself, but uh, that judge's predecessor. Uh, Because what your story really made me realize is how impactful it can be when a judge decides to delay their retirement. And what I mean by that is uh, Judge William Moore Jr. was appointed by President Clinton to serve in this district, could have retired under the Obama presidency and decided not to, and then ended up retiring under the Trump presidency. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that process and how that, I mean, it seemed like based on your story, that may have prevented a black judge from taking the bench in this district for maybe decades. Yeah. So in terms of Obama's vision for his judicial appointments, diversifying the bench was pretty important. Uh, Almost 20 percent of his appointments were black uh, judges. Um, And his only appointment to the to the Southern District of Georgia at Tarver, the first African-American U.S. attorney, one could imagine was a reflection of what he could have done if there were an, an opening on the trial court bench. But that said, the judicial nominations process is just so much more complicated than that. At the time that a vacancy could have opened up under Obama, Georgia had two Republican senators. Um, And so it's difficult to say if a black candidate would have made it through that process. I mean, what we do know is that uh, even with Republican presidents, they are less likely to appoint non-white judges. And that's according to sort of aggregation or analysis uh, by the Pew Research Center. So there's just so many things that even go into uh, considering what could have been. That's a good point. I guess when I was reading this, I would, I, I guess I kind of uh, threw Judge Moore uh, under the bus there for delaying his retirement. But you're right. I mean, it's kind of a, a pointless what if game to say like, oh, if only Judge Moore had retired, that we now have Judge Tarver. But that it's as you just really, you know, uh, pointed out, that's not the case at all. Right. The 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 hope is that things could have been different under Obama, but we can't say for certain 100%. Yeah. Okay, finally, sort of wrapping this up, let's talk about why this matters. Why does diversity on the federal bench matter? Uh, Ed Tarver talked about this in uh, in your video. We had, while I was U.S. attorney, some criminal uh, investigations that, in, in effect, resulted in the incarceration of every African-American male in one specific community. By diversity and experiences alone, you would have judges who would be more aware of the impact of of that kind of thing. So there are two big reasons uh, that proponents of diversity of the judiciary push for having uh, even more diversity on the bench. One of those being the legitimacy of the federal judiciary itself in the eyes of Americans. 
right? We are a country of of diversity, of many different walks of life. And so particularly it for people from marginalized communities to see uh, the court system be reflective of their communities as well, it legitimizes that institution in their eyes. On the other hand, with increased diversity on the bench comes increased representation of different life experiences and viewpoints. And sort of the idea behind that is that just creates better decision making. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Tiana Headley and Andrew Satter talking about their new story and video, uh, which you can see on our website at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thank you two so much for talking. This was a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks, David. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor today was Greg Henderson. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.